We are going back to the book of Mark, and uh, we'll need to catch up a little bit uh, what's behind us, but uh, we're going to look at this really strange, um, alarming, odd story in Mark chapter 5. And uh, we're going to and I will probably do this in two Sundays, so we'll probably look at it this Sunday and kind of go through the story. But as we get into it, you'll probably understand why we need to look at it a little bit more than just this. Uh, back in 2019, the Wall Street Journal ran an article called Hating Enhances Your Self-Esteem. And uh, it, it's based on a study that Hebrew University did in Jerusalem. And they studied uh, not just America. They studied the United States. They studied Brazil, uh, China, Germany, Ghana. Uh, Poland, Israel, and um, Singapore, I think. Anyways, and across the board, they found out that when we have a, uh, an enemy or somebody to hate, somebody to feel angry at, somebody that we are uh, opposed to as our enemy, it actually lifts our self-awareness and, self and well-being and self-esteem. That We feel better about it. And uh, that uh, it also, they also proved and showed that that a common enemy does unite. And when we have this common enemy, we kind of do come together here and, and unite. And um, it just proves to us how broken we are, really, that we have to ha hate somebody, we have to be angry at somebody for us to feel good about ourselves, that somehow we feel like the good guys, we feel more righteous, we feel like we've got it right, and, and we've got it all wired together. And that it, it unites us that if we have this common enemy, we can, we can uh, get together and, and oppose this, this common enemy. And it also, they also found that people who are end up into have the feeling these emotions of anger and hate, that uh, they, they're less likely to compromise and they oppose moderation. And I'm saying, well, all you got to do is look at Congress and see that. You know, we all know that. But looking at that, it's like... This, this is just kind of crazy, whether these enemies are real or whether they're imagined, that that's, what we, that's how we respond. And Christians are not immune to this at all. Uh, in fact, we're sometimes willing to jump in with both feet in all this. Uh, I, I was in seminary and in youth ministry through the 80s, most of the 80s, and I remember that, that period of time was the time of the, what they call these days the great satanic panic that we saw demons around everything, and everybody was in, in a demon worship. And, and I still remember this. I still remember being urged to, bur to burn our CDs and burn the books, and people were being accused in daycares and other places of practicing satanic rituals. And now Texas is actually making this process to pardon and release people who are in jail because of this, because the kids were coached to say all these things. And so we were panicked about this, and but we... But we it, it infused us. We got angry and we got active and, and moving forward. And, and the church was even growing in that time and stuff. And I'm thinking, well, you know what? Um, the, the rhetoric is kind of still around today. Uh, that we, we like to get angry. We have to have an enemy, whoever it is. And this is going to motivate us. And there are a lot, of, a lot of preachers out there and a lot of politicians who know that we can stir people up with hatred and anger. And so you get preachers out here preaching anger and hatred and notice that they, they can really, really motivate the people to move forward and, and get going. And I think we just have totally missed this today. Uh, Mark chapter 5 is a story about Jesus' confrontation with a demon-possessed man. 
And it follows on the heels of Jesus explaining how the kingdom of God has come and been inaugurated and how it's going to grow. And how it will grow is by this generous sowing of the seeds. And he even says the smallest seed of all, the mustard seed, that will even grow into this tree. And he's implying that it will eventually even overcome the Roman Empire. And that's where we are today. And we come to Mar- and then right after these parables, there is Jesus calming the storm. And then we have this story of the demon-possessed man. Why am I beginning here? Because this is where Israel was in the first century. We are no different than, than the first century Jewish population. They had real enemies, for sure, definitely. And they hated them. Uh, after they returned back to the land from Babylon, there was attack from the Persians, there was attack from Alexander the Great, and now finally the Romans occupied the Holy Land. They're back in their holy, gland, holy Land. They can practice the religion if they don't get too far out of hand. But basically, those are the enemies. And anybody outside the Jewish circles, they're the enemy. And we hate them. And we need to defeat them. And we just have to get on with it and keep on. And that's what this story is about in Mark chapter 5. Because right after he talks about the kingdom, he calms the storm on the lake. And why is that important? Well, the Jews knew very, very well that the prophets used the sea and the water as a metaphor, as a symbol of the enemy, of these kingdoms that are rising up. And Daniel chapter 7 talks about these kingdoms, the monsters come out of the sea. And Jesus just demonstrated his authority and his power over the sea. And so we come to this story that has uh, got lots of adjectives, uh, to um, uh, describe it. Like I said, it can, it's, it's magical, it's, it's beyond imagination, it's a bit alarming, it's odd, it's bizarre, but it's here, and it's a great story. It's a great story if we look at it, and I have melded this thing over my mind, well, because of the snow and the ice, weeks now, you know, and, and just trying to figure this out. So let's listen to the story from the book that we love. So they came to the other side of the lake, to the region of the Gerasenes. And just as Jesus was getting out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out from the tombs and met him. And he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For his hands and feet had been bound with shackles and chains, but he just ripped them open and he tore the shackles to pieces. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Each night and every day among the tombs in the mountains, he would cry out in a loud voice, and he would cut himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus at a distance, he ran to meet him, and he bowed down before him. And he cried out with a loud voice, Leave me alone, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. I implore you, don't torment me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of that man, you unclean spirit. And then Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, My name is Legion. Because we're a lot. We are many. And he begged Jesus repeatedly, don't send me out in the region. And there just happened to be on the hillside a great herd of pigs who were feeding. And the demonic spirits bellowed him, send us into the pigs. Let us enter them. 
And so Jesus gave them permission, so the unclean spirits came out and went into the pigs, and then they rushed down this steep slope into the lake. 2,000 of them died drowning in the lake. Now the herdsmen ran off, and they spread the news in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what happened. And so they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man sitting there clothed in his right mind. Uh, and uh, this is the one who had the legion, and they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to this demon-possessed man reported it, so they also told them about the pigs, and so they asked Jesus to leave. And as he was getting in the boat, the man with the demon-possessed, the, the demon-possessed man asked if he could go with him, and Jesus did not permit him to do so. Instead, he said, go to your home, go to your people, tell them what the Lord has done to you, that he has shown mercy to you. And so he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis what Jesus had done for him, and they were all amazed. What a great story, huh? <laughs> I mean, you just feel it, but, it, I, you know, you're looking at it going, what in the world is he talking about? What, is this, what does this mean? Well, right about, right about the, the very beginning, he says he's going to the other side. The other side of what? The other side of the lake. In other words, he is entering enemy territory. This is the enemy of Yahweh. The Gentiles, the Roman-occupied area, this is the Rome, this is the enemy. And yet, this whole story is to tell us that Rome is not the enemy. That there is a power behind the powers. And that's the enemy. Jesus came to establish the kingdom. Mark says that right off, to inaugurate the kingdom of God, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. But then he goes on to say that he has come to defeat the enemy, to defeat the devil, defeat the Satan. We have another, we'll look at this in a moment, we had another story of him uh, uh, casting out a demon that has to be parallel, that we need to look at this. But he also tells the story that it also followed in that when the, the leaders were saying, oh, well, you, you can do this, you throw the demons out because you're really possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And Jesus says, how can a house divided among itself sustain itself? And he says, no, I have come. There's a strong man. He was coming to the palace, and he has his goods. And the only way to, to, to he is plundering the goods, and the only way to get that back is to, just to tie the strong man up, to bind the strong man. And so that's what, we have to, that's what we're seeing here, the binding of the strong man. This is the defeat of the enemy. This is what he's here for. So we have this man. So what do we know about this man? Well, one, he is a tortured soul. So much so, he has lost control of himself. He lives among the dead. He self-harms. He is ferocious and unconquerable. When we talk about demon possession, we're we have an idea in our head, and most of that ideas that come to our head, those images come to our head, are thanks to Hollywood. And we, we imagine what this has looked like. If you've ever seen the movie The Exorcist, which I don't recommend, I may have told you this story before, but it came out when I was in high school, and our youth pastor was telling us about how evil it was. Don't go see it. So what did we do? Literally right after youth meeting, <laughs> we went to the movie to go see it. I mean literally right after the youth meeting. And I have regretted it ever since, to tell you the truth. 
It is a horrible, horrible film. I mean, it, it really affected me for weeks on end after that. Wish I'd listened to Bill, but I didn't. Bill Peel was my youth pastor. <clears throat> so this is what we know about him. And we know that he is tormented. That he lives in the, among the tombs. That's repeated three times. That he, he is unconquerable. Nobody is able to subdue him. Even with chains and shackles. Twice they mention that. This man is is unconquerable, and he is in torment. And that's what we see in this man among the tomb. This is a story bathed in the unclean. He is an unclean spirit. He is The whole story, the tombs, to have contact with the dead is unclean according to Jewish law. To be with pigs is unclean, is an unclean animal. Everything about it is enemy. Everything about it is unclean. Everything about it is, is horrible. And this is the man he deals with, that Jesus lands in, the, in enemy territory. This is the real enemy that we're going to be dealing with. It's not Rome. It's not the synagogues. It's the devil. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. So <clears throat> oh, we'll get to the pigs in just a moment. We'll, we'll go back. I mean, the idea is who is torturing and who is being tortured. And this man runs to Jesus. And I, in reading this, when I was reading this over and over again, I'm thinking, okay, is he angry? Is he trying to confront Jesus? Is he attacking Jesus? Is he pleading for help? Is he worshiping? He falls down before him. And that's why I think that this is not just your, your, your Hollywood version of, of a possession. This is a man who still can think. This is a man who still can reason somewhat but there's this confliction of Jesus is the enemy. No, Jesus is going to help me. Am I tortured or am I the torturer? And it just goes on and on. And he says, he, he wants, and Jesus says he's cast out, he's tried to cast it out, cast the demons out, and he's asked this name. And the interesting thing about these two verbs of casting out the demon that Jesus said, told him to get out and told him, asked him his name, it's in a verb form called the imperfect, which means this is repeated. In other words, if you remember the story, the first story of demon possession, Jesus just said, come out of him, and the guy left, the, the demon left. This gives the impression that Jesus has repeated this over and over again. He has told him to get out, and it's not responding. And then he asked him his name. Why do we ask his name? Well, that's how you gain authority over someone, is when you know somebody's name, you now have authority over them. And so it gives the impression that Jesus kept asking, but he never answered. And finally, he answers, my name is Legion. You might remember the story of Jacob wrestling the man at the Jabbok. Jacob's holding on to the man and asking him his name. Why? Is he curious? He wants to get to know him? No, this will give him some kind of authority over the man that he's wrestling with. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's wrestling, and finally he gets the name and has authority over him. And this man has super, super strength. He is an enemy of Yahweh. And he pleads, don't send us out, don't torment. And I think that's the man speaking, don't torment me. Because it's singular in this case, which is unusual. Don't torment me. And Jesus says, I'm not here to, to torment you. I am here to heal you. That this is the enemy. The man is not the enemy. The power behind the powers is the enemy. And they want to go, and he says, send us into the pigs. Now, I've been thinking about this a long time. Why in the world did they want to go to the pigs? And why in the world did Jesus allow them to go into pigs? What a waste of bacon. 
you know? <laughs> I'm thinking, what, what, what's, the, what's this all about? So these are, there's, it's impossible to recreate the scene from our point, you know, here in the 21st century. It's impossible to recreate exactly what that happened. And I'm just guessing here. I'm just kind of intuitively trying to figure out why. And so this is what I've come up with, that uh, the demon's job is to enslave and destroy. That's their job description. They came to enslave and degrade, and they are degrading this man. They are enslaving this man. And so they go to the pigs, and that's what they do. They go to the pigs, they enslave and destroy, even the poor animals. Second, even the unclean are victims. Even these poor animals who are considered unclean by the Jews, they are simply innocent victims of the demons. Just like this man was, even though he's a Gentile, even though he may be Roman, even though he may be one of the enemy, he is still a victim. It's not his fault. And it is a dramatic sign that Satan's kingdom is crumbling and his house is being plundered. Going back to chapter 3, verse 17, it's dramatic. 2,000 of them run and drown. And I think this is a, sin, a, a sign, this is a, a show, Jesus is showing that Satan's kingdom is crumbling. He is here, the king is here, and his kingdom is being torn apart. And we look forward to the day when it will be completely defeated. But it is crumbling before our eyes. And the destruction of the pigs seem to say that. I still feel sorry for the pigs. But I think that maybe has something to do. You may have another idea here, but this is kind of what I kind of came up with. Um, I remember sitting in, in seminary, we were talking about this story in class, and the professor was saying that pigs uh, can't, you know, they run into the water and they couldn't swim, and so they drowned. Well, there was a guy, one of my classmates was an Iowa pig farmer, and he goes, Prof, pigs can swim. <laughs> so... Who, who knew? Who knew, right? Well, evidently, pigs can swim. So they died because they were controlled by a demon whose job is to destroy and enslave. It is a direct cause and effect. <clears throat> this is a story of a different kind of strength. You see the response of the people, the herdsmen, they go and tell everybody about it. And they tell them about the pigs. That's what they, I would do the same thing. If this happened to me, if this happened to my flock or my, my herd, yeah, that's what I would do. I'd be going telling everybody about it. And the crowd comes back, and I'm, I'm suspecting that there might be the leaders of the villages, the leaders of the town, and they come back, and they see this man, that he's in, a, in, in the status quo. He is, he is uh, there's, there's uh, no problem here. And, but they say, ah, we don't, we don't want to deal with this too much. We want the status quo to be what it was. And so they ask Jesus to leave. And we are so addicted to the status quo, even if the status quo is killing us, we would rather remain the same than move on and then change. And so they asked Jesus to leave. This is a story of cleansing. The man is seen in his right mind, clothed. Richard Rohr would say he is now in, existing in his true self. The other was his false self. And this is the true self. And I don't think we should pass over this verse too lightly because this is kind of the climax of the story. He is clothed and in his right man. This is his true self. 
this is a story of cleansing. When they says he's an unclean spirit and he's in an unclean place, the word, the Greek word is akathartas. And you might recognize our English word catharsis in that. And the A before the word is the negation of that, that this is not a catharsis. And the solution was the catharsis. And my point is that the solution, the power that Jesus had was this power to cleanse, this power to make us clean, to remove the dirty stuff, to remove the evil. Whatever this man was going through, there, it was something that was, that was festering, that was permanent inside, and it was, it was just festering on the inside. And just like if you get a, a sore or something, it just begins to fester and get dirty and, and just grows and grows and gets sicker and sicker and sicker and sicker. And I think this is what's going on here with this man. He is getting sicker and sicker, and Jesus cleanses him. Confession is a catharsis. Tears are a catharsis. Prayer is a catharsis. Having someone hug you was a catharsis. David Brooks was telling this story uh, that, I w- that was in his, in his new book uh, about a young woman who was going to a wedding and her dad uh, had, had passed away young. And one of the saddest things was that he was never going to be there at her wedding and give her away. But she was a ba- ma- bridesmaid at this wedding and when it came time for the father-daughter dance, it was just building up. The festering was building up. And she went away and went to the bathroom. And when she came out, the whole table had lined up by the bathroom just to hug her. Didn't say a word, just hugged her. That's catharsis. That's cleansing. And it changed her life. Jesus tells the man his response was to go and tell others. And he says, go and tell what the, Jesus says, go and tell what the Lord has done to you, done for you, that he has shown mercy to you. And it's interesting in the next last verse, it says the man went and said what Jesus did for him. And I believe Mark did this on purpose. Talked about what the Lord has done to him, Yahweh has done for him. And now he's telling them what Jesus has done for him. In other words, they're the same. Yahweh and Jesus are the same. And what he had done for him was merciful. Was merciful grace. It is always unmerited. It is always unearned. It can only be received. And that's what the man does. He simply receives the mercy. And he goes. He is restored. He is rescued. And he goes and he tells the Decapolis, the the region of ten cities, what Jesus has done for him. When Jesus does these things, it's not magic. He doesn't do it to impress the crowds. He doesn't do it to try to to, uh, put a veil over you and maybe trick you into something. He does it to restore and rescue. He does it out of mercy and mercy alone. And the only response we can have is, is like the man, and that is receive it. And then go and tell people what? What Jesus has done for us. Forget the theological arguments. Forget the, the enemy. Forget the ones you're, gonna, you, you're trying to convince. You're trying to sell them. On a, you're trying to close the sale. It's good enough to just say, this is what the Lord has done for me. 
mercy. And all I had to do was receive it. So the real enemy, the real enemy is the power behind the powers. I believe Mark wants us to compare this story to the story in Mark chapter 1, the other demon-possessed man. Both of them have an entrance scene and an exit scene. Both of them have a symbolic setting. Very interesting. One is in a synagogue, a house of worship, the place where people learn the commandments of God, the place where people praise God, the place where people hear the Torah read, and the other is in enemy territory, the land of the Gentiles, the enemy. That should tell us something right off here, that the power behind the power, the real power, is not political, it's not religious, it's this imposter who tries to be on the throne. That's the power. Whether it is in a religious setting or a secular setting, they're both symbolic. We have a demonic description. There is a conflict with authority, a confrontation with Jesus. The, demon, the demons challenge and then plea with Jesus for mercy. Jesus gives the command to come out, finally, and they come out, and there's a capitulation. The demons do what Jesus tells them to do. The crowd reaction, some of them are positive, some of them are, are not. Uh, their healings, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, they are both healings. Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. These two things are supposed to go together because I think what Mark's trying to say is that the power behind this authoritative religion is Satan. The power behind this enemy political system is Satan. That they are victims just as well as we are. Next week, uh, we will look at more about the enemy and what this means and what do we, how does this, has this happened to us. Um, I don't want to give a lecture on demonology this morning. That's not my purpose. It won't be my purpose next week either. But I do think we need to deal with, with what the enemy is up to. And, and who he is. And yes, demons are hard for us to believe. Modern day Christians, we kind of gag on the idea of fallen angels or demons or spirit beatings and, and things like that. And we just kind of get over those ideas. But to me, it's the only answer. The, the Bible, like, like um, the Bible, the Old Testament Bible talks about how beautifully uh, the creation is and how it glorifies God and how the stars glorify God and the moon and the, and the skies and the trees and the nature just glorifies God, this beautiful creation. But at the same time, we know that we live to also live in a nightmarish creation. It looks like a war zone because it is a war zone. And these starry skies are looking down and they, this beautiful, beautiful created world also sees this nourish, this nightmarish world that is somehow sustained by God. And my only explanation is that there is a force of evil that's cosmic out there. I don't think free will alone answers that question. I think there is a cosmic war zone going on that he sees the good creation, he has seized the earth, he has seized human bondage. That's what he does. And Jesus has come to defeat that. I don't think there's a better explanation. I don't think free will, human, human free will is enough to explain what this, describe what this is.
think it's real. Now, everything is spiritual. So I want to say, make things, two things really clear. First of all, I believe in mental illness. Mental illness exists, and it can be treated with good counseling, good medication. It exists. But I also believe in demons. And I believe there's a force out there, a cosmic force, that uses all kinds of things, including mental, mental, uh, mental illness, emotional issues. It uses all kinds of things. And yes, this was demonic. But so is homelessness, so is poverty, so is addiction to drugs, so is uh, a sexual abuse and physical abuse. All those things are demonic. Amen. And I, I have a, my, my daughter, over years of coaching and teaching, she has become very, very familiar with this, this kind of thing, uh, especially with kids harming themselves, uh, suicides, more than she wishes. We were sitting at a pizza restaurant, and then a waitress came up, and she walked away, and Katie says, she's cutting herself. Well, how did you know? She says, you just know the signs, what she's wearing, how she acts. She says, she's, she's self-harming. So I, I emailed her this last week and said, hey, why do kids do that? Why do people, why do, people do that? She says, all kinds of reasons. He says, some of them are just so overwhelmed, they don't know what else to do except hurt themselves. Some of them hurt themselves just because they can't feel a thing and they want to feel something. She said he had one, she had one kid who, who took his clothes off and went up on the roof in the middle of the winter just because he wanted to feel cold because he couldn't feel a thing. She says that, that sometimes they get so deep in depression that there's, their brain releases dopamine when the, when the pain eases. And so they cut themselves for the pain so that they can feel better when it gets better. And sometimes it's just to get attention. Regardless, regardless, it's demonic. Self-harm is demonic. And that's what we're looking at here. The demon's job is to degrade and enslave. And that's what they, that's what they do. But I don't want to get past, don't want to go on without the last verse, because the last verse is amazing. In verse 20, he went and proclaimed to the Decapolis what Jesus had done for him, and all were amazed. And let me tell you, we have learned, we have lost the ability to be amazed. And I think that makes all the difference in the world. We were, they were amazed. We have been so inundated with cynicism and criticism. And yes, it makes us feel righteous when we have the right enemies. That we have forgotten how to be amazed. And they were amazed. They were amazed that maybe the kingdom of God is here. Maybe the kingdom of God is doing. Maybe the poor will be lifted up. And maybe the, the tyrannical rulers will be brought down. Maybe the hungry will be fed. So I think this thing at least accomplished three things. First of all, it challenged the social order. Jews never care about the enemy. They, they, I'm sure Mark and probably his audience, they probably would have been perfectly happy if those pigs represented the Roman soldiers and they went off the cliff and drowned. They would have been perfectly happy about that. But Jesus took an opposite approach, totally reversing the social order, 
Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. Synagogue or tomb or cemetery, doesn't matter. It was a powerful demonstration of a different possibility. That this could be different. This could be changed a bit. That Jesus meets the need not with chains and not with shackles, but he meets it with hospitality and justice and love and sacrificial love. He doesn't try to bind them. That was the, that was the, the other option. Let's try to bind them with chains and shackles. That doesn't work. He, changed, he, bind, he, he, he got control by releasing him, by cleansing him, by restoring him and rescuing him. And it exposed the real enemy. It exposed the real enemy. And the real enemy needs a different response. And I know we like to control people. If we could just put some chains and shackles on them and make them behave, this place would be a better place. They don't work. They don't work. I mean, one of my favorite Martin Luther King jokes, uh, jokes quotes, not joke, this was not a joke. It was a quote. He says, he says uh, you know, the law cannot make a man love me, but it can keep a man from killing me. Okay, that's good. That's, that's a good use of the law. But he knew that the law cannot make another man love him. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus changes our heart. So to me, this is a really good story. <laughs> I really like this story. Um, that um, it's a story for everyone. That he does offer freedom. That the kingdom of God, maybe the hungry can be fed. Maybe the rulers can be brought down. Maybe the poor can be lifted up. Um, sadly, I feel like our culture is like the first century Jews. That we are full of cynicism and snark and uh, we have confused the enemy with the people. And so we can see, we think that the people are our enemies and we've lost who the real enemy is. And yes, it does help our self-esteem when we can see that everybody else is the, is the enemy, see everybody else as the corrupt ones, and see everybody else as the sinners. And that helps our self-esteem. And we can live together in our own bubbles. I mean, I even know... know uh, uh, people who want to move to other states because they want to live with people who think like them. And here Jesus is going into the enemy territory. This is what he does. Shackles and chains don't work. But amazement is just the opposite. Amazement is just the opposite. That we don't have to be this way. We don't have to be just covered with cynicism and snark and criticism. The power of God is more powerful than that. The kingdom of God is doing its work. And I am, um, I'm tired. I'm tired of the taunting and the manipulating, uh, the driving to despair in the situations we live in. Um, I want to say with Jesus, stop degrading, stop enslaving stop destroying waste your energy on the pigs <laughs> leave the people alone but this is how christ does it the end is the establishment the encroaching of the kingdom of god that it takes over that's the end and if that's the end 
the means have to match the end. We can't say that this is the end and then use shackles and chains. We use the end, it means we use the means as well. The means must match the end. To establish the kingdom of Jesus, we have to do it the Jesus way. And this is the Jesus way. Knowing who the enemy is, who the real enemy is. The way Jesus did it was through sacrificial love. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for this um, really bizarre story. It's fascinating, but Father, it's also convicting. Father, we give you permission to take over us, that you protect us from the evil one and fill us with your spirit and empower us with words and deeds and actions not just trite sayings, but with our lives. And it's in the name of Jesus. Amen.